This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the deadly heat dome of 2021. 619 people died in the deadly heat wave two years ago. Now the BC government announcing free air conditioners for vulnerable people. Will Who will qualify for these units? Will it be enough? Got Helene Boyd standing by to discuss. Have a listen to Health Minister Adrian Dix here. The government is taking new action to invest $10 million in BC Hydro to provide free air conditioning units to vulnerable people throughout the province. Okay, $10 million. Will it be enough? Who will qualify for these AC units? Let's discuss with my guest, Helene Boyd. Helene is the Executive Director of the Disability Alliance of BC. Very pleased to welcome Helene to the show. Helene, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. So when we look back at the deadly heat dome of 2021, I was just refreshing myself in some of the statistics here. And man, there were a high proportion of people with disabilities, right? who died in the in the heat wave correct yeah that's correct it was uh uh, like a overwhelming majority of those who had chronic conditions who were also over the age of 65 and i imagine that's the case because when you have certain types of disabilities it becomes really difficult to regulate one's body temperature it's also difficult if you're immunocompromised or if you're homebound and you can't leave your home and also we did hear during the heat dome about awful conditions um, of overheating in long-term care facilities. Yeah, but it's really, really troubling. And also looking at some stats on people with mental illness. So like people who were have been diagnosed with schizophrenia, for example, died at a much higher rate during the heat dome. And that's troubling too. Uh, what are you hearing from, from the people in your organization on this? What are your concerns? We've actually been advocating for the coverage of air conditioners in the disability community since the heat dome over two years ago. Uh, and the reason for that is we were hearing from our clients who suffered from overheating from various reasons due to their disabilities. And we, our advoc- advocacy was mostly done through the Ministry of Social Development and Poverty Reduction because that's the ministry that supports people on income assistance and disability assistance. So low-income people with disabilities especially were disproportionately affected. And we didn't really have much success in getting air conditioners covered through the ministry except for issues of crisis. Um, So like in the deep parts of the summer perhaps, but really we need to make this more of a preventative measure. So really hoping that this new um, fund will make a difference in people's lives. Okay, this announcement got a lot of attention yesterday. $10 million, this program being operated through BC Hydro for air conditioners for vulnerable people. Helena, are you, are you satisfied that this, this will be enough? I mean, there's a lot of people here who would need help on this, I imagine. Do you think it will be enough? It's definitely a welcome news 
for sure, and it's a start. I am concerned that it's not enough for two reasons. I think, first of all, it's overdue. Um, the Ministry of Health was meant to respond to this recommendation from last year's coroner's death review panel of the heat dome um, in January of this year. So they're like six months overdue in implementing such a program. And it's just like the beginning of the summer season. So I am concerned that it won't make a difference in people's lives this year because it might take some time for the program to be implemented. And then, of course, I'm concerned that 8,000 air conditioners will not be enough. First of all, that's over three years, and I imagine that the demand is so high that those 8,000 air conditioners can be um, dispersed way quicker than that. And considering that with within the social system, system there's over 300,000 people, low-income people with disabilities. So 8,000 air conditioners, I imagine, won't be enough. Yeah, it, it does seem to be a, a somewhat slow response, especially when we're now on the brink of the, of the hot weather and all the experts are telling us we should brace for a very hot summer here. Let's take a listen to the health minister again here speaking yesterday. He was asked about this. How long will this take? You know, it does seem to be a little late to the game here. Here's what the minister had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. Here's Adrian Dix. We still have to purchase and acquire and install air conditioners, and that can take some time. Well, yeah, it's going to take time to source and, and purchase these units and install them all. I mean, how, how long is this going to take, Helene? Did, did you say it was three years? The 8,000 air conditioners are meant for over three years. So I don't yeah. expect for them to be dispersed right away within the first year. So my um, recommendation to the BC government is to really assess it after the first summer season to see how many were actually implemented and what the demand was through how many people applied and to um, be more nimble and dynamic in terms of responding to um, like those who are suffering from overheating. Yeah. And you mentioned that there are a lot of low-income British Columbians in our, in our province right now, and this is 8,000 air, air conditioners. They will be targeted to vulnerable people. Who will get these? Do you know, are there any details on how people will qualify to receive these? I don't know the details just yet. I only know that it's for seniors, vulnerable people, and low-income people, and that it's being done through BC Hydro, and that there will be two types of ways to apply, either through a means assessment through BC Hydro directly or through Health Authority. Um, but the issue with that is that with a health authority, usually you need a case manager, and lots of people with disabilities don't have a case manager. And then through the means assessment through BC Hydro, like I'm concerned that the eligibility process might be not done in a fair and equitable way that um, will address like a dignified way of, of asking people about their income and their disability. It can be extremely demoralizing to ask about those two things. So I hope that it's done in a fair, equitable, and dignified way. Yeah, and it's also tricky, I think, for people to access a lot of these programs. Sometimes you need to have a little bit of technical savvy to be able to go online and apply for these programs. A lot of people may not have an advocate to help them with that. Are, are you concerned about the accessibility of the program itself? Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm always concerned about that. That's sort of why Disability Alliance BC exists, because we help people get onto certain benefits and programs, because there's lots that aren't known or they're extremely difficult to apply on your own. Uh, so certainly hope that BC Hydro will reach out to community organizations to get the word out and, and get more support for those who need to apply.
You, you also touched on the number of care homes that need these air conditioning units. A lot of these are older buildings, right? So would they have the existing infrastructure, say duct work or whatever, to install upgrades to air conditioning systems? I mean, that's got to be a problem too. Yeah, I'm I'm less um, familiar with the infrastructure of care homes per se, but I do recall that during the heat dome in last year, what the long-term care facilities were trying to do was use fans instead, which don't really cut it, especially in extreme heat. And then they wouldn't have enough fans for for all the residents. So then there were some residents who were just sitting in their bed overheating. So like there's there's many different factors that need to support those who are disproportionately affected by climate change. And the air conditioning program is just one element of it. Elaine, we're continuing to follow this issue closely. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Take care. All right, we continue to talk about the deadly heat dome of 2021. 619 people died in the heat wave two years ago. Now the B.C. government announcing free air conditioners for vulnerable people. This is a $10 million program. Let's discuss with my guest Robert Patterson, rental rights lawyer, tenant resource and advisory center. Very pleased to welcome Robert back to the show. Robert, thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for inviting me. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. And let's talk, first of all, a little bit about air conditioners. And I remember 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, and I was looking for a place to rent. And back then, you know, you never asked, is the, does the place have air conditioning? You know, has it got AC? It just wasn't an issue. Now it is an issue, right? Like, are you hearing from tenants who are looking for places to rent? They, they, want, air, they want AC. They want air conditioning. Are you hearing that? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely become uh, an issue. It's It's gone from sort of a luxury to increasingly a necessity, right? As we're dealing yeah. with the effects of climate change and uh, increased temperatures, and, you know, in the lower mainland and also across the province. Yeah, it's our buildings were uh, and our codes weren't requiring AC or requiring cooling. And now we're sort of in a situation where it is ne- it's becoming necessary. We hear a lot from tenants who don't necessarily, you know, uh, wish for there to be AC, but really we get contacted by people in dire situations, people who are in units that don't have AC. AC, and it's making it, you know, un, unlivable, uh, either be, during the heat dome, where I think you hit the, the sort of peak of that situation, but even other times, any kind of heat wave, some units are just uh, consistently uh, unpleasantly warm, and it puts, you know, tenants are in a bit of a gray area when it comes to their rights to cool their own units. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about that, because what are the obligations here on landlords to, to provide air conditioning, or are there any? I mean, you have to provide heat, right? You can't rent out a place that has no heat, correct? That's exactly right. You can't rent yeah. out a place that doesn't have that without heat, because heat is defined in the Residential Tenancy Act as an essential service. The yeah. problem is that there's not a very there's not a clear corresponding definition of cooling services as an essential service. There there's some creative arguments that tenants can make to say that you know the law supports the argument that uh, cooling is is a necessary and essential service in some cases, um, but we haven't really seen that tested. And be, without a sort of clear right, you know, like in a circumstance where you tenant level might disagree about the provision of AC or whether the tenant can install their own AC, um, you know, if there's no clear right, then 
if that argument takes longer uh, than the practical uh, pressing issue of the heat, um, then it's not really helpful to a tenant. I, I think there's also, you know, getting in, not to get into weeds too much, but, you know, some landlords will include, that can include terms in their agreements that limit when, when a tenant can install air conditioning or other appliances uh, or might have some other limits on the use of utilities. And those terms aren't clearly illegal, and they might in some cases prevent uh, tenants from installing AC. Okay. Do you think that air conditioning or cooling should be essential? Should it be in the same category as heat in a rental unit? It's a really good question. I mean, I think there are certainly times where AC is an absolute necessity to be able to live in a unit. Um, I think that there's, a, I don't think air conditioning is always the solution uh, in every single case. I think what would make sense for, uh, from a, a policy point of view, is to encode a right to a, a reasonably cool unit. Um, how exactly that cooling is delivered, we don't have. We can let that be sort of determined in the circumstance. And oftentimes it will be AC, but perhaps sometimes it won't. We can have other solutions, heat pumps, uh, other fan solutions, etc. Um, but some kind of right to cooling needs to be implemented legally to make sure that people aren't found in these situations during heat domes and are, are scared to turn turn on their AC or their fans if they have them because of threats from their landlord. Yeah. And what is the law around that? Like, can your landlord put in your lease or tell you as a tenant that you are not allowed to install an air conditioner? Like I, I sometimes hear this uh, from people who live in stratas or condos. The strata council doesn't allow me to put an air conditioner in my window, like a window air conditioner, for example. Is it legal for the landlord to say you can't have an air conditioner? So under our current laws, there's nothing that would make a term like that illegal. So on the face of it, yes, they, they are allowed to do that. Um, and yeah, it, it is uh, it, it is something where if we, there needs to be, I think, some kind of workaround for that, for if nothing else, for emergency situations where tenants need to be running some kind of air conditioning to survive in their units. Right. And now, okay, so now we have this program that's been rolled out yesterday, $10 million for air conditioners for vulnerable people. Robert, what was your first take on that? Do you think this will be adequate? I mean, I think first off, it's a it's it's a good response to the emergency that we're facing yeah. two years ago. So it's a bit of, bit of a longer time coming, but better late than never. And at least thankfully, there hasn't been a major heat event since then. Um, I hope that in the rollout of it, it's the kind of thing where you hope that these these air conditioners are being delivered to tenants specifically, and that they, you know hopefully they're portable air conditioners such that the tenants can take them with them. Otherwise, you know mm. you. We put an AC in a unit with a tenant in it. Uh, if that tenant has to move later, um, now the if they have to leave their AC behind, now they move into another unit that might not have air conditioning, uh, and the landlord has benefited from an upgrade to their property, right? Mm. So uh, there, there's fine-tuning of the, that part of the policy. I'm, I hope that, the, that that's been all thought through to make sure that the benefit is flowing to the actual vulnerable group uh, here, which is uh, tenants who are living in, in unseasonably warm and dangerously warm apartments. Um, right. But it's, I mean, this is the kind of absolute essential step, if nothing else, as a stopgap. Um, you know, okay. there, I know a lot of people in government are thinking about this question, and there are a lot of discussions about, okay, how we need to change how we're designing our buildings from the ground up to make sure that we're future-proofing so buildings can okay. have uh, cool air, clean air, but this is a good first step. Robert, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the record high number of new drivers taking their ICBC road test to get their license. Last month, a record number, 35,000 road tests were conducted throughout BC. That is an increase of 24%, also at a record high level. The number of people failing their road test. This is running about 50% fail on their first attempt to pass their road test. I got Grant Gottkatrue standing by. First, let's have a listen here to Jerry Bowl. Jerry is a ICBC road examination supervisor. Why are so many people failing their tests? Let's listen. I think people come in a little too unprepared, right? They need to make sure that they're spending way more time behind the wheel, get that driving experience. Um, maybe they're not getting the correct, um, you know, teachings as well. Okay, people coming in unprepared. Well, I don't know, maybe people figure just wing it. Maybe I'll pass first try without a lot of training. Let's check in with Grant Gottgetrue now. Grant is a former traffic police officer. He is now a forensic consultant on traffic violations. ForensicTrafficPro.com is his website. Hey, Grant. Happy hump day, Mike. Yeah, same to you. Thanks a lot for coming on again today. So let's talk about the number of people who are failing these road tests here, Grant. 50% failure rate. Does that surprise you? Well, it, it, it does, uh, but it also tells me that um, the um, those drivers shouldn't be on the road, so that's great. I'm happy to hear that. That's 50% <laughs> of less mayhem on the roads. Um, the, 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 um, the fellow that you spoke to there from ICDBC, they got the quote. Um, I'll say that he's half right. I don't think that they're coming in unprepared. Um, they're coming, the, the youngins are coming in. Um, well, don't forget, this is the participation trophy generation, right? Where they don't understand anything about ramifications and everything they do, they get a gold star for. And, um, I've always maintained that the, that the written exam, the, 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 the test you get to get your learners is far too easy. But the road test, obviously, there's ramifications, and that's excellent, uh, and that's the way it should be. And and he mentioned about lack of training. I absolutely agree with that, and I've said this before on your show, that every person who applies for a driver's license must have gone through a driving school first, not been taught by mommy and daddy, who all have bad driving habits, right? <laughs> so... That, to me, would, I mean, if ICBC and the government were really serious about saving lives, yeah. that's what they would mandate. They would say, oh, you want your driver's license? you got to go to a driving school. A licensed and approved driving school by the government, not one that's just created out of phantomness. Yeah, I like the idea of young drivers getting some professional training, too. I mean, that's certainly the approach I'm taking w- with my sons and you know, I consider myself to be a safe driver. I would prefer them to get some professional and professional instruction. Let's listen to driving instructor Joan Wallace here speaking to Czech TV in Victoria here. And, and she'll make the point about 
why people who get professional driving instruction have a better chance to pass this road test. Let's listen. They need to get some professional instruction. I, I strongly believe that. 50% of the people that are parent-taught fail. Students who take a course uh, or even a couple of lessons, their chances of passing go up to about 74%. Okay, so she says the, the, the kids who get instruction from the driving school of mom and dad have a higher fail rate and you got a much better chance with some professional instruction. Does that ring true to you, Grant? Absolutely. Every one of my yeah. kids that got driver's licenses all went through driver training uh, schools, such as, you know, Best Way or Young Drivers of Canada, which is what I started with back in the early 80s uh, yeah. when I got my license. I mean, I, I, as a police officer, I have police officers have uh, high performance driving training. I didn't teach my kids how to drive. Um, I wanted them to go through a school. If I taught them how to drive, then they'd know how to do code five takedowns and high-speed pursuits, and that's really not going to help them. Okay, I'm taking a look at a study, Grant, on what are, what are some of the more most common mistakes that new drivers will make on a road test. And there are several here, but one is a rolling stop. So this is one of the most common mistakes to avoid in a road test. Make sure you make a complete stop, let's say at a stop sign, and not the rolling stop. I find it hard to believe that someone would do that in a road test, do a rolling stop through a stop sign, but maybe people do. Your thoughts? Well, a lot of people think they've come to a complete stop when they haven't. I mean, I did so much stop sign enforcement, it wasn't even funny. Um, yeah. You know, there has to be a complete cessation of movement, and and there's that always that little uh, confusion where you think you've stopped because the, the vehicle kind of lurches a bit and then you start going when you actually haven't stopped. But you're going to fail anytime you contravene the Motor Vehicle Act. So if you're sure. going over the speed limit, uh, when I took Young Drivers of Canada back in 83, um, they taught us to do at least five under the speed limit. And it's like, okay, well, I'm learning how to drive. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do that on the road test. Am I going to do that to the rest of my driving life? No. But, you know, you get taught the, the proper way at the beginning. When one of my kids went through driver training, they were taught, oh, you can go about five kilometers over. And it's like, yeah, okay, then you're going to fail your test. And that's what I told them. Don't speed during your test. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, don't don't speed. Uh, lots of others. What what else would you say are some of the more common, the common mistakes that a new driver would make on a road test? Like I'm looking at this survey that says conf being confused at a four way stop. So you get to a four way stop and you're like, uh, how does this work? You know, that, that is not a good thing to do on a road test. Parallel parking that's always tricky for. For, for a lot of people, never mind just new drivers. Do you think what are some of the other common mistakes that people make? Do you think? Oh, stopping past the stop line at a, yeah. uh, at an intersection—that's one that they'll ding you points for, or demerit points. But the the um, the parallel parking. Well, if you can't do it, they're not going to fail you. It's about five demerit points, so you yeah. won't fail for that. It's the ones where you're you're disobeying the, the motor vehicle act. So, and when it comes to four-way stops, uh, please, I mean, how many people, I mean, uh, that's one of those things where everyone just sits there and looks at each other and it's like, no, yeah. you've got right away. And it's like, and these people have been driving for decades. How do you expect a 16 or a 17 year old, you know, who's still wet behind the ears to figure that out? So.
Okay. Hey, Grant, while I have you here, let me ask your opinion on another story that we covered on yesterday's show, because I'm really interested in your thoughts on this. So this is a story that I think is kind of flown under the radar a little bit and hasn't got enough attention. The BC Highway Patrol, which is RCMP officers who patrol our highways in the province, announcing that in the lower mainland, they will no longer attend accident scenes on highways. They say they will shift their focus to proactive traffic enforcement, catching speeding drivers, catching impaired drivers, distracted drivers, handing out tickets for that. They won't, they'll stop attending actual accident scenes and local police will now be required, like municipal police forces or municipal RCMP detachments. They will now have to go out to those accident scenes on, on a highway. Now, I spoke to Inspector Brian Donaldson yesterday, BC Highway Patrol, and he said, look, you know, a lot of these accident scenes include things like even stuff falling off the back of a truck on a highway. And he said they got better things to do than having their officers go out and respond to that. Here's what he had to say to me, then I'll get your thoughts. Having those calls for service and being responsible for that has really hamstrung our ability to do what Highway Patrol uh, is intended to do, which is doing that enforcement. And we can't do those if we're pushing a sofa off the side of the highway. Okay. We can't do traffic enforcement if our guys are busy moving a sofa off a highway that fell off the back of a truck. So they're not going to respond to these calls. And, and local mayors, Grant, are upset because they now say, well, this puts more pressure on our, our police officers now. Your thoughts? Well, boo-hoo to that inspector. Typical of a pencil pusher, right? That probably hasn't been on the road since uh, the dawn of man, and they lose. Well, we don't. Lose. We don't know that. We don't know that. Maybe, maybe he has been. I don't know. Well, yeah, but I've dealt with pencil pushers like this before, and trust me, I, I'm not too far off base on that one. What this does, when I started to get into the into policing, it was in 1987. I started doing ride-alongs with Portman Freeway. And uh, we went to car accidents. It's your job. That was their job. And and nothing has changed. What this emphasizes to me and what should be a a cautionary uh, to everyone out there is this highlights how understaffed the RCMP are in the lower mainland, especially in a lot of the detachments. Yeah. Um, So so now Burnaby RCMP are going to have to respond to crashes on the freeway and they're not going to have the the cars to go so this is what's going to happen i guarantee you this is going to happen there's going to be an accident on the freeway in kensington and burnaby rcmp will go we don't have any cars that can attend that so the highway patrol are still going to have to attend that's exactly what's going to happen because general duty priority calls take priority over traffic collisions or couches on the freeway so the the, the members that are working their butts off on freeway patrol as it is are still going to have to take this, those calls. This is just lip service, and it's rubbish. Mm. I mean, look at Abbotsford, right? So Abbotsford is Abbotsford police are now going to have to do the freeway there. It doesn't make any sense because, again, their priority is to serve the community, the residents that live in Abbotsford, not the cars traveling through on the highway when you have highway patrol out there. But if you've noticed, both these Island and Portman Freeway Patrol have – they're running short. If you contact yeah. their unit commander out there, they're running short. They've had to combine those two units. They used to be separate. So, you know, there's I, I can see through the mud because I, I was in the profession for so long. I know when smoke is being blown and I know exactly what's going to happen.
All right, Grant Gottkutru is my guest, talking about how many drivers fail their road tests. The answer is a lot of them. Let's go to your calls, Brian and Coquitlam. Hi, Brian, go ahead. Hey, Mike. I think the biggest issue, at least what I've seen, is the lack of road time to get experience before taking the test. I have a friend that's been trying to get uh, his end license for about eight years now, and I'm the only one available to, to go out on drive with him, and I don't have enough time to give him the experience he needs for, for And I know a lot of people that have been stuck like that. They don't have anyone to drive with. Okay, that's an interesting point. Grant, your thoughts. Not enough time behind the wheel. Well, is, did, did, did the person go through a driving school? These are, the, these are the questions. Like, if they're being self-taught by friends and family, then, yeah, that's a recipe for failure. I guess, but you, do you need both, though? Do you need the professional instruction and also a little bit of, you know, time behind the wheel with your end? Well, I, I don't know, because... I did. A, I, I got a lot of driving time when I was when when I went through. I mean, driving hasn't changed. You still yeah. put the you know there's accelerator and a brake and steering wheel. And and I did. A, I had a lot of driving time with my driving instructor, and I went and did the road exam and passed. So yeah, um, I'm not too sure. Maybe uh, I would like to think that a lot of the, the I would like to think that the driving schools focus heavily on let's get out there and drive. Versus classroom time, like a little bit of classroom, but get out there and drive and lots of experience. But uh, yeah, let's let's go to Peter in Poco. Hi, Peter. Go ahead. Oh, hi. Good morning. <laughs> I love your guest. He had me in hysterics. Yeah. <laughs> I was a driving instructor for quite a few years, and I totally agree. Um, not enough experience uh, behind the wheel, and also I think they should have. Um, it should be absolutely compulsory, government-sponsored driving school. I um, I think one of the best driving schools in the Lower Mainland is Young Drivers. They put you through a course at JI, and you're under the microscope uh, with a well-qualified instructor. They teach you how to teach people, basically, is what it is. Very good system, best in the world. And also, Thanks. Thank you for the call. Do you agree, Grant? Do you think it should be mandatory, Grant, professional training? Absolutely, 100%. Uh, like I said, if they were serious about decreasing the carnage on the street, on the roads, especially with the young drivers, that's exactly what the government would do. Rick in North Delta. Hi, Rick. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. I just wanted to relate uh, about my son, oldest son who lives in France, has two teenage sons, and they are re- uh, uh, required to take a mandatory uh, government-run uh, testing, a course which costs 2,000 euros each, and it's two weeks full-time. And then they have to log 3,000 kilometers after that before they get the license. Wow. Okay, so the professional training is mandatory, correct? Yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you, Rick, for the call. Okay, well, that sort of backs up some other jurisdictions doing what you're, you're saying. Grant, let's go to Doug on the line in Surrey. Hi, Doug, go ahead. Hi, Grant Mike. I took young drivers back in 70 in, uh, in Toronto. They put us on a hill in a Volkswagen. We had to know how to pull away safely into traffic. That was for starters. But what really bugs me these days, I will uh, not mention the name of the employer. When I retired 10 years ago, I worked for a uh, big bus outfit, and uh, there was excellent mechanics that I would trust with anything to do with a bus. They were excellent mechanics. But once we were marched into the uh, into the lunchroom, and uh, for the employer to pass some tests with the government, they all had to sign some form. Um, I know I'm going to likely get branded as a racist, but I told them after, I said, these guys are great mechanics, but it was a five-minute procedure. They had to sign a bunch of papers and it looked like a lawyer's contract. And I said, okay. is it? 
Okay, okay. I, I, I'm not, yeah, Doug. I'm not sure where you're going with that, man. So, but uh, I do appreciate all your calls. The show. I don't know where you're going, Doug. I don't know where you're going. I'm, I'm uh, googling, using Google Maps to figure out where he was going. Okay. Hey, Grant. Thank you for coming on today. Always my pleasure, Mike. Okay, here we go now with the explosion in sports gambling in Canada and across North America. Betting on sports. It is everywhere now. The professional sports leagues like the NFL, they're totally on board with this now. They have gone all in on gambling after resisting it for so long. And you see a lot of sports superstars now promoting the sports books, doing TV commercials for sports betting, and everyone has seen these ads. How can you not? Right? It's been like saturation advertising, Wayne Gretzky, Connor McDavid, so many other stars promoting sports betting. I've got Carl Subban standing by, the head of one of Canada's most famous sports families. The father of the Subban brothers, of course, P.K. Subban. And Carl, I got Carl standing by. First, have a listen to this here now. This is a listen to some of the ads that you see everywhere now for sports betting. Have a listen. Come on! Drain that three! I'm trying to practice here, Wayne. You need it. Yes! Slow down, I gotta make my picks. You want to this win bet with me? Win bet. I like where your head's at, but Boston's not covering. You think Boston's going to cover? Why? You know something I know? I went with Greg on this one. He has a whole system. <laughs> big payout. Big payout. Big payout. <laughs> oh, man. You heard, uh, you heard Shaquille O'Neal there at the end. Everybody's getting in on this now. Let's discuss with my guest, Carl Subban. Carl is the head of one of Canada's most famous, famous sports families. Uh, the father of P.K. Subban, Malcolm Subban, Jordan Subban. Carl, thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you very much, Mike, and uh, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Oh, you bet. I'm very grateful to you for coming on here, and congratulations on all the success you, your kids have had here in sports. I think it's awesome. So let's talk about the uh, your passion on this issue here now. You believe, tell me your thoughts on this. You think that these, these commercials, the advertising for sports gambling, they should, it should be just outright banned. Is that right? Yes. Um, we, I'm on a committee, uh, to ban ads for gambling, uh, sports gambling. And, and we are, uh, we have some strong feelings, uh, around the proliferation and content of these sports, uh, betting ads on television, especially especially when you see uh, these superstar athletes uh, in them uh, and, and they make gambling so enticing, especially the young people who love them so much. Yeah, for sure. And do you think that has, I mean, obviously that has a lot of impact on kids, right? I mean, you're the father of an NHL superstar. You know that the kids look up to these guys. Yeah, they do. They do. I'm not only a father and a hockey parent, but I'm also an educator. And, you know, they say the part of the brain that's responsible for decision-making is not fully developed till about 25. So these kids, uh, they love their superstars, you know, but we need to remind them daily that you don't have to like them in those ads. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like the smoke that's impacting all of Canada. And, 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 and it's affecting how we're living. And gambling is having, it's, it's having even obviously a greater impact because you don't see the smoke. We're only going to see the results of it.
Yeah. Yeah. When did this, when was the wake up call for you on this, Carl? I mean, this has changed so fast. We see the explosion of this, of this legal sports gambling. When, when, did, what drove you to get involved in this? Well, the committee uh, reached out to me, but you know, Adam, you know that I've, I've uh, watched hockey all my life, whether it's in the arena or in front of the television, first with yeah. my boys and, and daughters growing up and, and now with my grandchildren and sitting there, I, I, you know, something was wrong. I had this feeling in me watching these ads game after game. And then eventually it, like it, it became bigger than the game. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it became it, it, yeah, and so and so I'm sitting there and I'm saying, no, I don't think I want my uh, young granddaughter and and grandsons to be exposed to this, especially seeing these superstar athletes uh, telling us that you know it's gambling's fun, you know yeah. you're gonna score like I did in the NHL. No, it's 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 just not right in my mind uh, from my position as a parent. And from my position as an educator and from my position of caring about young people as much as I do. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people agree with you on that. And especially when you see ads like current superstars, like I think maybe it's one thing for Wayne Gretzky to be to be promoting the gambling. He doesn't play anymore. But then you see guys like Connor McDavid out there saying it's okay to bet on these games. I don't know. You know, this guy's still playing in the, in the sport and he's encouraging people to, to gamble. Do you think, okay, I mean, we could talk about banning the advertising period completely, but what about these athletes? Do you think current, like especially athletes who are still playing today, should they be pumping up these sports books? Well, I think they're putting themselves in, in, in a position that is not a positive one for them. Um, because uh, we've seen it playing out already. And I, I don't think it helps their image. I think it really hurts their image. Because when you um, follow up and, and, and the literature, the growing mountain of evidence out there about the harmful impact and gambling, it's not very positive. And who wants to be associated with that? You know, because it's not just about make it in, in your sports. It's also helping others to make it in life when it's all said and done. And you know what? I'm going to share this quote here. And if, if, if you don't mind, gambling, yeah. gambling, the sure way of getting nothing for something by Wilson Misner. But we know that you do get something. You end up getting bad habits yeah. and you might even end up being addicted. Yeah. So I don't know a lot of good coming from it. And when it's all said and done, you know, I wanted my sons and my daughters and my grandkids and all the kids I've worked with to make it in life yeah. when it's all said and done. And, and some of us are in a position and we have the platform where we can help so many people to do that. And I don't want anyone, including my son, using his or her fame, using his or her fame. Uh, the wrong way, because that's not success. Success is when you use your fame, what what you have been given, to help others to find their way. I love the way yeah. I said that. From way to I, fame. I, so do so do I. I think it. I think it's very wise what you're saying. Speaking to Carl Subban. Carl's the head of uh, one of Canada's most famous sports families, the father of NHL superstar PK Subban. So, speaking of uh, your kids, Carl, have you talked to your your kids about this? Like, have you talked to PK about this? Does he feel the same way? 
Well, most parents know once your kids get up there in the late twenties and thirties, they you know when they're younger. After a while, they said, "I don't want to be seen with my dad in public." Now we don't talk as much. But PK, I connected to PK the other day, and he said, "Daddy, daddy." That's just PK. If you know PK, daddy, daddy. Um, I'm I'm signing a six figure deal, uh, you know, with one of these gambling company. You know, I say, PK, guess what? Dad will always love you. You will always be given my unconditional love, but I will not like you in the in those commercials or ads. I'm just telling you that. Okay, son. So I don't have to like everything you do. All right. So uh, he's like so he is you're my son. So he is he's going to do this now? PK is going no, no, to do no. some... No, he was only oh, joking. He, he was kidding. Know PK. He okay. was kidding. Yeah, that's <laughs> PK. You know, okay. you know, he, he hasn't changed from from the day he came into this world. And I give him so much credit because I tell every young person, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. <laughs> oh, my goodness, PK. You give your dad a heart attack here. Yeah, you yeah. Go. But you know what? That, uh, he strengthened my heart. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Do you think, <laughs> oh, do you think that, you know, the possibility of young people getting addicted to gambling like this is this is the key concern for a lot of people i think most people would think that you know gambling is you know one of life's little small pleasures if you can keep it under control but when you talk about young people and they look up to these sports superstars is that your key concern like young people getting addicted to gambling let me tell you this yeah. i want young people to to be addicted to realizing their potential and it's our job to help them to unleash it and, you know, it's our job, you know, PK, Malcolm and Jordan, my daughters, all the kids I've worked with, I see the potential in them and I want them to realize it. I don't know too many people who are addicted to gambling who are realizing their potential. If you know them, please let me meet them. And yeah. so it's not a good thing. That's one habit I don't want anyone to have. It's not good. And, and I'll tell you this, more and more young people are dabbling into gambling. Yeah. They're gambling and because it's so easy for them to access it. I don't know one young person over 12 who does not have his, have his uh, own, own cell phone. And right. they have access to these online gambling stuff. And then you have this superstar telling them, it's okay, it's as easy as scoring goals. Well, <laughs> I don't know how many gamblers are winning as uh, as many times as Wayne scored goals in the NHL. Yeah. Here, here's the other thing I wonder about. I think uh, getting young kids addicted to gambling is a, a, the key concern. The other one I wonder about is uh, is corruption in sports. Like if you have even the suspicion that uh, a player or a referee is making some kind of dubious call or play when there's so much money riding on these games. I mean, you need to have public confidence that the games are fair, correct? Yeah. You know, yeah. I, just look at Pete Rose, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. uh, allegedly, what he did got in the way of, of he, you know, uh, benefiting uh, from his great history as a baseball player. And right. we, you know what? Kids have dreams. And, and that's one thing that can take your dream away. And it can take your life away. So, um, yeah, I, I just don't like the proliferation of these ads. 
uh, and we don't like the content of them, and and we just want we just want to increase awareness, and we want to drive the political leaders to do more. Because okay, uh, I, mm-hmm, go ahead. I I congratulate you for speaking out, and for people who what is the website? Because I know there's a, your campaign has a website, right? Yes, uh, just go to the website banadsforgambling.ca for more information. To see our members, you can make a donation, and there's a lot of information there. And and everyone on our committee, I'm not the head; I'm just one one committee member uh, who loves uh, our our society, and we love the idea that everyone should uh, unleash their potential. And I don't think uh, being a gambler, developing that habit, is going to help you to, to do those things. Carl, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and have you on the show today. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Mike, thank you, and keep up the good work. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.